Yes, 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 we're in for a really interesting episode on today's Shifting the Narrative. I'm so happy to have Caroline Dennett, who publicly fired Shell because of how they operate and how they greenwash. So it's going to be a really interesting episode today. And Caroline, oh, she's just one of the raddest people I've met in a long, long time. She's a music enthusiast, corporate activism boss and frontline XR advocate, and just someone who's got loads of energy and charisma. So she first popped up into my social timelines when she fired Shell. And I'm hoping to get some insight into what it's like behind the scenes of one of the largest emissions producers in the world. So without further ado, Caroline. Caroline, welcome to the Shifting Narrative podcast. Thank you. Um, so I personally remember my social timelines almost blowing up when you publicly fired Shell. Um, and, uh, you know, the community that we're in, it's a bit of an echo chamber, but there was this, this sense of like pride and we're all almost energized that somebody stood up from the inside. Um, I'd love for yourself to do a bit of an introduction to yourself um, and then also give the reasons why you left Shell um, and almost what the feeling was like when you went public on it. Yeah, so thank you. I, so I worked, I started working for Shell in 2011. So in the aftermath of the Deepwater Horizon disaster in the Gulf of Mexico, where, you know, just millions of barrels of oil got spilled into the Gulf of Mexico, decimating the, you know, the Florida and Louisiana coastline. Mm. They realised, Shell, that is, that that could have been them. It was BP, right? That was actually BP. But it could have been any one of those players. And they wanted a genuine way of trying to understand what were the behaviours like, what were the pressures like at the front line that could lead to that kind of incident happening again. So I was uh, contracted in to design a survey, mm. a safety culture survey, to understand employees' perceptions of safety culture and safety behaviour, risk management, etc. And I always thought that would be a pilot mm -hmm. and they'd take it in-house. And to be honest, even in that early stage, I was never very comfortable about mm. working for the fossil fuel industry, not because I had great awareness of climate change, but because of their pollution in the Niger Delta, mm. for example, very dirty business going on there. But I thought, oh, this is going to do some good, you know, we're going to help, you know, care for people. So... They loved it, very hard analytics, and they said, what would it look like if you did this for um, indefinitely across mm. our global, you know, kind of footprint? I said, okay, yeah, so we'll give that a go. So fast forward, you know, in time, uh, loved the job, worked with some cracking people, mm -hmm. really great, very interesting, felt I was making some difference, but as my awareness of climate change and the ecological crises became more acute, mm. kind of really started to question. But, mm. you know, you still justify to yourself, yep. I'm doing some good here. And then in 2019, I became involved with Extinction Rebellion. Mm. And then my climate awareness really shot mm. through the roof. And I thought, oh, my God, the science here, you know, we we really have to wind down on, mm. on fossil fuels as well as do other things. And it became very uncomfortable for mm. me then. But I was on the inside, right? So it's quite interesting, quite good to have that information. But I was just starting to see, you know, signs of continued extra, uh, expansion of mm. their um, uh, of their portfolio, wanting to find new licenses for drilling, mm. expand and extend pipelines. Mm. And I just thought, you know what, I can't, you know, I can't really do this. And another kind of factor started to come into play. Again, more pollution in Nigeria that was very, very distressing for myself. And, you know, a, a couple of things, just a couple of things happened along the way that just made me think, you know what, Transitioning is one thing. Seeing a safe transition of operations to renewables is one thing. Supporting increased uh, production is, is another. And I just thought I had one last job to do with, in Nigeria. 
And I thought, this will be the last time I do this. And when uh, I go, I'm going to go with a, with a yeah. bang. <laughs> so what was that? How did you do that? And, and what was the feeling like? Almost like, oh, wow, this is one of the biggest organisations in the world. Yeah. Proper David versus Goliath. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, kind of. I felt quite sad, actually, because a lot of people were relying on on my business to report to management real safety problems and things that needed improving. And I knew that I was going to abandon Mm. those people. And I felt like I was a real conduit, you know, the voice of the workers. So I felt bad about that. Um, But I I felt good that this was something I could do. I tell you what, one of the triggers uh, that really happened, well, two triggers, quite interesting. I attended a Zoom uh, meeting for, with Just Stop Oil, actually, the Just Stop mm. Oil uh, young activists. And they had Noam Chomsky uh, as their guest speaker. And Noam said very wisely, do you know what? All you can do is to do what you can with the abilities that you have in the place where you are. And I thought, boom, right, this is what I can That's do. That's where it clicked. Yeah, I thought I can really go public with this. Um, so that was one trigger. I knew what I wanted to do. And then I saw an Extinction Rebellion action in the Shell headquarters in April Mm. and someone was holding up a poster that said insiders wanted what do you know about Shell and I thought okay it's not I'm not going to whistleblow the kind of things that people expect which is dirty secrets Mm. and salacious things but I'm going to say that inherently their business is now unsafe so I contacted truthteller.life which is a offshoot of Extinction Rebellion told them my story what I wanted to do and they went yeah, we'll, we're interested, so we'll, 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 we'll help you with this. And then that, you know, we kind of planned it for a few weeks and it, we planned it for the day before the Shell AGM mm. in London. So Timing's everything, right? It worked, yeah. I mean, that could have been a really busy news day, right? And it yeah. might have gone nowhere, but yeah, it felt good to do it. I felt justified in doing it. And, and what um, did it feel like afterwards? Because there was obviously like a lot of momentum and energy. There was, and it was... I cannot believe the positivity of the response that I had. I I had a very low profile on LinkedIn. I'd never really used it very much. It was just a proof that I was a genuine business. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, there's all these people out there, sustainability this, renewable that, that are actually doing stuff to really help combat climate change and mm. take care of the planet. And I, I was so pleasantly surprised. The media interest was phenomenal, mm. all very positive, even perhaps a more right-wing establishment press were not anti mm. you know I'm not saying they were particularly favorable but they gave me fair fair hearing so yeah I was I was really really surprised I think if I'd done that a year earlier it would have been different but mm. I think the time is now the time is turned the tide is turning it mm. is definitely turning and it's it's crazy isn't it because sometimes us human beings are very complex beings but it, it takes these moments of, of craziness uh, you know it takes these moments of self-realization uh, often to keep um, a sense of momentum going because then you saw the community come uh, to like you, you know r- recently um, with uh, the Coca-Cola Enterprises sponsoring COP27 um, th- there's an amazing um, lady called Georgia who set up a petition and she was wanting 500 um, sign-ups to, to basically just say this isn't on. Yeah, yeah. You can't have um, the largest plastic producer in the world uh, sponsoring COP27. And, and the last time I looked, it was over 85,000 wow. signatures and she was wanting 500. Yeah. And, and it just shows the power of community. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, there's a number of people watching or listening to this 
work as freelancers. Um, they work, uh, you know, maybe in, in, in startups or scale-ups. What's it like in a big fossil fuel business? You know, are they talking about climate change? How are they talking yeah. about it? So first of all, um, they're not talking about it. So the surveys that I was running over the period of 11 years, 20,000 plus employees and contractors that we surveyed uh, within Shell. So, so I was a contractor, right? So I didn't work inside Shell. So my company, you know, was contracted in to do that. And but you had that inside perspective. Oh, very inside perspective, yeah. like on such a minutiae detail. It was incredible. I would say we had well over a million words of open feedback from those 20,000 people wow. being surveyed over 11 years. I would say less than 2%, maybe even less than 1% ever talked about climate change, transition, even using their language, net zero. Like it's not happening. And what I've learned about kind of organizational cultures, you know, if, if you want change in your organization, then you have to talk about the change that you want and you have to bring those people with you and you have to empower them to be mm -hmm. able to make that change. You know, the fact that we were talking about safety and safety is part of HSE, which is health, safety and environment. Mm. Given that that was the kind of uh, topic, the wider topic, surely that was the, that was the opportunity <laughs> for people to at least say, well, we're transitioning or I can understand in this period, you know, blah, 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 or we've got these targets. No, I, really a handful of times did I ever hear that. And, and that is in places like, you know, like Nigeria, which is horribly suffer suffering from not just the effects of climate change, but from localized pollution, from so many, you know, millions of barrels of oil leaks uh, over the last uh, 20, 30, 40 years. So, yeah, nothing, you know, which now, I'm sure if I was surveying the PR department or mm. the marketing or branding team in Shell, I expect all they talk about is transition, mm. net zero, you know, green this, green energies. But that's not the reality of the operations on the operational front line. There's very little talk of that. And you, it has to be a holistic thing. Yeah. You can't just, from a communications perspective, be talking about it. You, if anything, you need to start with the operations, right? And then you yeah. get to the communications at the yeah. end. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm a big believer that there are good people in bad companies. And, and I, I'm, I'm really interested to know your perspective of working from the inside to make change. Like, that surely is something that we need right now. Yeah, we absolutely do. And there are ways... Around that, I mean, I wasn't on the inside, so I didn't feel that I had a, you know. So, I mean, it's it's a cop out actually for me to say I couldn't have had any influence on management. I I probably could as a as a contractor, um, but I wasn't on the inside. I didn't have employee rights. You know, mm. I didn't have those kind of terms and conditions. But I do think, yeah, people need to start asking the question. And do you know what? One of the things that I really wanted to happen because I wasn't seeing it or hearing it was to start the conversation. And, mm. and I didn't really care whether that conversation was negative. It's like, oh, what on earth does that woman think she's doing? <laughs> like, we trusted her. Like, I'm sure they feel quite betrayed, the ordinary uh, workforce. But I thought, well, at least they're probably talking about it now. Even if it goes like this, I can't believe what she did. And the other person <laughs> might go, mm, she's got a little bit of a point though, hasn't she? And, oh, well, maybe. You know, I thought at least maybe it empowers them to have that conversation at least amongst themselves rather than this complete, you know, silence. So... So, yeah. so uh, you, you know, what, what questions, if you could give any advice to, to employees working within the inside or as contractors, what questions would you be wanting them to ask? Yeah, I think, well, where's your plan, for <laughs> one? Um, and what can I do to make that plan happen? But I think, you know, just asking, asking questions amongst each other, I think, first off, 
you know, do you feel al are you alone in your concerns, or actually does your you know coworker, workmate, mm. teammate, do they feel the same? And therefore, if they do, you can start that conversation and then realize actually that you know there's quite a big group of people, and there's a there's a kind of spectrum of actions that you can take, you know, including asking even you know if you're within i mean you're within the industry yeah like what are we doing mm -hmm. when's transition transition coming what mm -hmm. are we going to do when people start leaving because they don't want to work in the fossil fuel industry yep. anymore and i know that's happening that's yep. happening on a massive scale they're hemorrhaging talent and experience uh all the way up to i guess eventual walk out mm -hmm. you know walk out if you don't get the answers i mean that's at the kind of like and i don't mean leave your job i mean just Mm. Dang tools, mm. uh, you know, as as people have done uh, when they're when they're striking. But yeah, I think there's a whole range of things that people can do. But but asking, and I think if you're not in the, even if you're not in the fossil fuel industry, but from a sustainability point of view, again, you know, ask the questions. How are we having these growth targets? And you want us to hit, you know, I don't know, twenty five percent reduction in carbon emissions by twenty thirty. How how do how do they marry? How how can we we can't achieve both of those things? Pick the one that you want and let's go for that, you know. But it, it's, I think there is a lot of greenwash wrapped up as sustainability. And and consumers are really, I've got a real radar on that. Mm. They smell it. Mm. They can smell it a mile off. But at the same time, there is some smoke and mirrors. I mean, BP, they invented the carbon footprint. I'm interested to know, um, you know, are there other things from the inside that you think the fossil fuel industry are leading? Is there any, uh, I guess, inventions almost to say, hey, the problem's over there. Take the spotlight off us. Yeah, yeah, I think there is. I mean, I mean, actually, one of the things they do is they focus on alternative energy that, frankly, we're not seeing. So hydrogen is a really good example of that. If I look at Shell... I know in their renewables portfolio, they do have um, hydrogen R&D. Where is it? Mm. Where's, where, where is that fleet of hydrogen buses? Where are the hydrogen cars? Where are the hydrogen electricity generators? You know, if all this money, if all the, these, they claim millions, if not billions of investments going, well, where, you know, where is it? So I think they're very good at picking the thing that is very expensive, mm. requires a lot of investment, and they're not really doing anything with it. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot, I think there's a lot of that going on. So they can look like they're focusing on renewables, whereas the actual renewable solutions that we know are up and running, solar, wind, tidal, other forms of hydro, you know, they're not interested in that. And the reason they're not interested in that because they can't make mm. any of that. You know, they can't, there's no ongoing product, is there? So they like expensive infrastructure. They like expensive production because they can get a lot of investment, there's a lot of return, mm. and they love the model, you know, and they haven't, they don't know how to remodel their business. So, so a year ago, you know, we had COP26, and we had brands putting these lofty, ambitious targets, but they were so far in the future. I mean, what's your perspective of that? Yeah, 2050 is a total nonsense. It's, it's a nonsense. We have to decarbonize rapidly, as soon as possible really urgently um my personal view is unless we do that we are gone as a species and we'll take i don't know how you know a million species is currently at risk of extinction so we'll take some of those with, with us as well um so it's really urgent you know but we're we talk about this as if it's some yeah we're focusing theory. on the time it's like oh there's you know there's a date over there yeah. we're going to do this by then yeah 
is put it in the future, put yeah. it on the shelf. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, whereas if you have a personal target, you know, if you want to lose weight, for example, or be able to run a marathon, uh, you don't wait until the day of the, uh, you know, that you're going to be weighed mm. or the day of the race to get match fit, right? You you have to start that program now. Mm. And they're not starting the program now. In fact, they're doing the opposite of starting the program. They're seeking new licenses. They want to uh, build more uh, extraction in infrastructure. They, they're involved in, all of them, I'm not just talking about Shell, Total, BP, uh, Exxon, Chevron. You know, they're all still investing. Here's a really good example. I don't think many people know about this, but in Uganda at the moment, they, Total Energies, are looking to build a 1,400-kilometre-long pipeline from Uganda down along the coast of Lake Victoria through Tanzania, down to Tanger and out into the Indian Ocean to uh, transport crude oil. Now, the fossil fuel industry do not have a very good track record on pipelines. They leak, hence the Niger Delta is in such a state. So that's a new piece of infrastructure. It's actually late. It's not being built yet because they can't get the investment that they thought they could. But, you know, that's that's expansion. That's the last thing that we need. And when I hear people say, oh, but, you know, it's part of the just transition because the people of Uganda will benefit, they will not benefit. And here's my evidence for that. Nigeria, which has been producing oil and gas for decades, actually since 1956, you would think domestic Production should be domestic supply, but it isn't. Less than 15% of Nigerian homes have an indoor clean cooking facility. Wow. And yet they ex- they're the 12th bigger, biggest producer of gas wow. and they're the f- world's fifth biggest exporter of liquefied natural gas. There's no benefit. Mm. It's not a just transition. Mm. It's a massive, massive colonial injustice, actually. And, and for the large organisations, enterprise organisations, like... There are transformation journeys happening. Um, and in some cases, they are more vocal than others. But like all large organizations, in fact, even small organizations, that every organization, every brand is on a journey. How do we allow um, there to be a bridging of that gap? You know, okay, th- this, this is going to take time. We are going to get to this vision, we hope. And you know, we need to be accountable on that journey. Um, But from a communications perspective, it seems to be quite quiet. (laughs) How do we build confidence for the people in the organisation to be able to say, look, we're going to do this, but we're on a journey. We're still not right. We need to do better. But also be able to put the pressure on the other side that they need to do it quicker. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. And I've just completed actually a sustainability study for a quite a sizable sports company, uh, which involved also surveying their employees as well as consumers. Um, And, you know, one of the interesting things is just how unempowered employees feel Mm. to be the change makers that they're supposed to be, according to the uh, ambition, should we say. You know, so people really, really want change. Employees really, really want change because they're like the rest of us. You know, if 80% of the global population are concerned with climate change, which is mm. according to the last UN study, that is that is the case. Of course, 80% of employees of any company are looking for, for that. But, you know, if they're not empowered, if they can't make micro decisions about what materials that they order, their production processes, 
um, you know, how, yeah, how much circularity is in their products, then, then they've, they're not going to get there, mm. are they? You know, and of course, a lot of them realize that, yeah, actually, at the same time that you're asking us to do that, you want us to sell more product, but mm. those things are completely incompatible. So, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for ensuring that, that if you're a genuine brand that genuinely wants to transition, make sure that your people are clear about the objectives and that they feel that they can be part of that. And that is a communications exercise, yep. actually. You know, yeah. that's about being having great business leadership. It's about helping others to be great leaders in their organization mm. and that people can feel empowered uh, to make, make, make decisions and, and absolutely contribute to that. But, but you, I've, I've seen it in the work that we're doing in Viral with, with our clients and, and the conversations that we had, which haven't actually necessarily turned the conversations into clients because we didn't necessarily believe it was coming from the right direction. Mm-hmm. We, we almost see, you know, their personal perspectives being one thing, but then as soon as they're in the nine to five, they're wearing a different kind Agreed. of... What, what's that about? I know, and that's a problem. We step into this corporate environment and we suddenly become Mr. and Mrs. Rational. <laughs> oh, no, that's not good. You know, it was actually... And then we go home and we sob our hearts out because we know that our time is limited on the earth unless we really, you know, radically do something about it. Did you see that at Shell? No, because they're not talking about it at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. But I do see it in, in other clients that I work with. And uh, going back to this kind of sustainability study that we did, I mean, you know, everyone there knows. And yet then we kind of get in the debrief room, you know, and we're debriefing. on, And then suddenly they're talking about, you know, profitability again. And, you know, oh, but how do we do it with, you know, and, 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 and keep selling products? Well, you know, here's the thing, isn't it? We need to really rethink the business model and, if the business model is incompatible with sustainability, then how we profit has to change. So if you're an organization that sells product, well, maybe you have to sell repair. You know, maybe you have to sell experiences. Maybe you have to sell something else. But if you're selling product and your raison d'etre is to just sell more and more and more and more and more product, well, then you, you can't be in tune with nature. You can't be sustainable you know, and if and if you're using, you know, the whole point of sustainability, of course, it's not just about the environment, but it's about ethics as well, mm. and, and and government go- governance, and you know, the social license that you mm. have, and how do you make sure that people aren't being exploited in the in, in the whole supply chain, which is currently, you know, that's that's also what's happening. So those things, those injustices, are all tied up together. You know, when we get climate justice, we need to have ethical. Uh, ethical justice as well yeah uh, it's it's such an interesting thing because you know especially at the moment when look businesses around the world at the moment are feeling the pinch and therefore their appetite for risk and and, you know to to go and say all right we're gonna you know now sell experiences or we're gonna sell repair that is a risky thing and it comes with costs whether it's marketing or or, or, you know um uh, being able to to set up new areas within the organization to be able to service those new things on top of that there's a systems problem surely like it feels like at the moment we're stuck uh, there are families who are genuinely struggling to pay their bills and families who even a year or two years ago weren't in that specific um you know bracket um I- i'm i'm interested to know your perspective, um, and I don't want to go too deep into this, but media and governments, surely they're the ones that really have to change here. 
Yeah, they do. But it's interesting. I just want to pick up what you said about risk because when people, you know, it's it's how you define that risk, isn't Tasty. it? It's how you define that risk. Yes, there is a risk to business if you can't sell and you don't have an alternative model, but that's nothing like as big as the risk of there will be no humanity in which to sell your product to. True. So it is. It's about near-term risk and, and medium-term risk and, and long-term risk. You know, or, or flip it and see it as opportunity. First people in the market to sell repair. You know, first people to, you know, take your community, which you've built, and then bring it into the physical space rather than just the digital space. And, and you know, I do believe that without margin, you have no mission. Um, but I guess it's the opportunity to get there first so that that mission can be as progressive as possible, right? It is. But, you know, competition is such a capitalist concept, actually, in terms of business. You know, True. we don't have to be competing. We could all be collaborating. You know, it could be that, you know, the what are competing brands currently could be working together to solve the problems instead mm-hmm. of we want to be, you know, if we're first to market, why would you want to be first to market? So you can profit from it first, mm-hmm. right? But that's... That's old system thinking. Right, system change, right? It is. We have to have that because that's what's got us into the problems in the <laughs> first place. This idea that we've got to compete and compete and compete. And actually, you know what? Maybe we don't have to do that. You know, maybe what we've got to do is collaborate and collaborate and, and, and have a coalition of purpose and really get those things done uh, together. Because if we carry on the way that we are, we, we know where we're headed. You know, we're here where we are with our climate and other societal risks because of the way that we've behaved. And, uh, you know, I think that whilst there are going to be a lot of people who are going to seriously, seriously be in a lot of financial, and not just financial trouble, but, you know, well-being mm. trouble, mental health trouble in the next months ahead, let's not forget there are many, many, many companies who are profiting massively. They are not feeling the pinch, including the fossil fuel industry, including, you know, some big farmer. You know, there is a lot of... There's a lot of money around. Um, and I think, you know, is it something like, you know, 100 companies, you know, are responsible for mm. almost all of the carbon mm. <laughs> and all the mm. damage on Earth. You know, they, they, so they're, they're causing the problems and they're massive, massively profiting and that, that wealth is not being um, fairly distributed. Yeah. Well, I, I know that one of the, the core elements to system change is where our money is going. And, um, you know, North Sea extraction is on, apparently. It's a thing again. <laughs> Solar farms, that nah, don't need those. Um, money and investments, I know pension schemes are a, a big, I, I don't know if we call it a passion, but yeah, it let's is. Let's call it that. Let's call it a passion, <laughs> shall we? Um, you know, finance and finance models are core to the, the innovation of, of system change. Um, Tell us why we need to shift the narrative specifically on pensions and, and what's what's wrong with them in the first place. Well, I'm not going to talk about what's wrong with pensions per se, because some people would even argue that that is a, a, you know, a ludicrous way to organise society. But let's assume that pensions are OK for the <laughs> minute. Yeah, they're problematic because many people don't know where their pension money is being invested. Yeah. And quite a lot of that of their money so that right that's workers pay let's get that down to the you know nitty-gritty that's workers pay it's a part portion of their pay that goes into a a pension pot Mm -hmm. they pay a bit their employer pays a bit and you wouldn't you know you wouldn't put 10 pound in an envelope and send it to a fossil fuel company 
out of your pay packet every month, would you? But that's what's happening effectively, you know, a portion. So if you pay, I don't know, maybe £120 a month into a, you know, into a pension scheme, that means that a portion of that is going to fossil fuels. So that's, that's inherently wrong because that means that you are funding a future that you are never going to retire mm-hmm. into. So that's massively problematic. But that's a really good part of kind of employee activism or any kind of activism, actually, because or action that you can take. Because if you, you can ask, you know, it's your right to ask, where is my pension contribution going? Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is going into, into, into fossil fuels, which is criminal, actually. So, and not just pension. I mean, particularly, I'm particularly passionate about local government pension schemes. Um, so that's, you know, people who work for councils, uh, you know, across the country. Um, they are funded really by the council taxpayer because that's who pays the wages effectively of um, council workers. So whether you're a council taxpayer or, or a, a worker or a member of that pension, you know, you've got, you're a stakeholder in this and you should be asking questions mm. and, and telling them to take it out. And that how? Is, how how yeah. do you ask a question? Well, it's, uh, and that's interesting you do that because... So every uh, local uh, pension, local authority pension scheme has a pension fund committee. So they're normally a group of councillors, elected councillors, who sit on a committee who oversee uh, decisions made about that pension fund. So you can write to them. Doesn't matter where you, which county you're in. You have a, you can write to that pension fund. Mm-hmm. You can go along to a, a committee meeting. You can ask questions and you can tell them, you know, the reasons why you think mm. that this should be changing. That does work. That does work. Here in the Southwest, um, Brunel Pension Partnership are the organisation that actually manage the portfolios uh, for nine local authorities in this area, plus the Environment Agency nationally. You can write to them and tell them that you're unhappy. If you're actually a member of that pension fund, phone the hotline, mm. phone the helpline and mm-hmm. ask them. Do it. Yeah, just do it. I mean, so that's a fair question, you're right? The, you're the person who's going to... Yeah, it's your money. It's your money, right? It's your money. It's your savings. So there are things. And we have seen a massive shift. We've seen a huge shift. So we started something called Southwest Action on Pensions, uh, myself and a a few uh, colleagues, and um, to really, you know, bring down some pressure onto both Brunel and local uh, pension schemes. I am actually a a previous member of the Dorset Pension Fund because I worked for the County Council for a few years. And we have seen a shift, you know, by engaging the pension funds, by continuous campaigning. We have seen, and they've reduced from 128 million invested in fossil fuels mm. two years ago to 41 million. So it can be done. Yeah, It really, really can be done. And that money is being invested in, you know, more sustainable uh, investments. So that's fantastic. And that is purely due to pressure. Yeah, I would say so. Pressure, cajoling, you know, helping people to feel enlightened and helping people to feel that they that you know the people who make the decisions that they that this is safe that they can make those those changes you know that this is not going to risk the money it's their the pension pot isn't going to collapse mm. because they make in fact it's, it's probably likely to do better uh, because you're investing in something that's more sustainable rather than you know funding the dinosaurs mm. uh, so what's next is that to take that number down to zero yeah 41 to none in uh, that's what we're 41 million to none that's what we're going for but that is the tip of the iceberg because you know people the biggest thing that people individuals can do I wouldn't say forget your carbon footprint. We, we do all need to be, you know, lowering our uh, energy consumption, etc. But look at where your money is. Look at where who who do you have your mortgage with? Can mm. you switch? I know people might think it's a bad time to switch mortgage, but who do you bank with? Mm. If you bank with Barclays, you are definitely 
funding fossil fuels. They are mm. the biggest European funder of the fossil fuel industry, followed by HSBC. They've got £120 billion pounds currently invested mm. in fossil fuels. So if you're part of that, switch to another bank, you know, get out of that. And that's really powerful. The carbon, the carbon footprint of that money is huge. And I don't know if, if you're aware that um, Make My Money Matter, mm. a great campaign. They did a calculation on that and, you know, something like, you know, moving your money out of the pension fund that's invested in fossil fuels is 21 times more effective from a carbon point of view than uh, stopping flying go, or going, you know, vegetarian or vegan. It's, it has real, real power. Mm. So there's lots that we can do, you know. So when people say, oh, you know, buy more sustainable beauty products or, you know, actually just look at your money, look at, you know, your actual money. That is the most powerful thing that you can do. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's really powerful, isn't it? And, you know, I, I'm I'm specifically interested um, by communications techniques. And let's go back to greenwashing a, a little bit. Like, you have organisations, let's, let's look at, okay, restaurants, of course, they're physical spaces where they rely on people to come to, or hotels. You, you open up a new branch or a new store, even locally, you tend to talk about it, right? But... The, the shells, the BPs of the world, they go and open up a load of new um, fossil fuel extraction sites. They're not shouting about that. It, do you think almost these organisations need to? There should almost be a policy from government level saying, look, you need to be much more visual um, and much, much more vocal on what these sites are, what they do, and ultimately the impact that they have. Because on tobacco, you have, mm. you know, you have yeah. negatives of, of smoking um, and it is quite literally a law. Why is it not a law? Yeah, it's not a law because the lawmakers in this country are the people who are sanctioning it. You know, they're, they're actually saying, do it, go ahead, do it on our behalf. You have our blessing, go forth, you know. So that's that's the problem, isn't it? That the people who should be protecting us from the harms are the same people who are giving the licenses and saying, actually, you know what, this is what mm. we need. Because, and, and the thing is that, you know, they've been lobbied by the fossil fuel industry very successfully and that we all now talk the language that they want us to talk, whether it's about net zero 2050 or, I mean, this was, you know, this did really deeply anger me when the EU a few weeks ago, maybe it's now maybe more like five, six weeks ago, announced that they accept that gas is a green energy. Mm. And that's that's from the fossil fuel industry. That's because, admittedly, it is lower carbon. It's lower carbon than coal, for sure. It is, it's lower carbon than oil, but it's not carbon-free. And, of course, it has methane mm. attached to that, you know? And methane is, depending on which science you listen to, but it's as much as 86 times more potent as a greenhouse gas... Uh, greenhouse gas for global warming mm. so now we're introducing you know worse actually in terms of greenhouse gas uh, emissions and um we're being told that that's that that we're being told that gas is a transition energy source it's not it's not you know it's only going to transition us to to armageddon mm. actually but you know we we accept this and now and now we're giving gas licenses and now it's gas or gas, you know, and, and we're going to start fracking for gas. But how that, how that communication plays out, it's almost like they don't need to greenwash Shell and the likes BP because they're doing it on such a massive macro scale. You know, the alchemy 
it's alchemy actually that they're doing, you know, because they are, you know, forgive me to say it, but they're taking what is a pile of shit and they're, you know, they're sprinkling gold dust on the top and saying, mm. look, this is how good this is. That mm. it's, it, it's kind of alchemy, you know, they're really convincing us on such a macro scale that almost greenwashing, you know, on the micro scale doesn't matter. That's all, you know, that's almost like for fun. It always just seems like that's for fun and games, you know, because the big greenwashing is being done at the EU level, at the government policy level. And, and that's, you know, that's what we've really, that's what we're up against. You, you, um, you gave some advice to a, a good um, friend of ours, Lauren, this morning, who is um, very frustrated by British Cycling, who have just managed to sign an eight-year deal with Shell. Um, what in- input did you give to her that you can talk about? Yeah, so, I mean, it's horrifying that that has happened. Uh, I don't even know how, how that has happened. There is no relationship, is there, between an outdoor sport and good health and well-being and the fossil fuel industry. But I, I just asked her to look at the language because the language being used, and I understand it, it's wanting to be friendly, but is just using and reflecting the language that the fossil fuel industry use, which is about our net zero targets, 2050. Uh, t- you know, just let's not talk about that. They need to they need to reduce their carbon emissions now mm. and by 2030 um, using the language of, you know, our, you know, our, our targets for transition. No, what we mean is the harms that you're causing to the environment. You know, that I, I think we need to be talking about oil and gas. That is blood money as far as I'm concerned. That is blood money. That's like, the, you know, when we used to talk about blood diamonds and blood gold, you know, we are... We are creating sacrifice zones in parts of the world where we are willing to see the death of human beings and nature in order that we carry on producing. So I just kind of asked her to toughen up the language a bit, toughen up the language, because I think otherwise we're just, it's that corporate hat. (laughs) We're putting the corporate cloak back on, we're stepping in and going, oh, we're talking about climate change. Oh, let's be all very professional and let's Mm. be very corporate in our language. And that's a mistake. You know, we have to talk about the earth. We have to talk about nature. We have to talk about future generations. Um, and we have to talk about the pain that we're already inflicting on ourselves. And because if we don't talk about that, then we're just caught in this mm. theoretical out there somewhere idea that climate change is something bad that's going to happen in the future, whereas it's actually something bad that's happening right now. Powerful stuff. But yeah, I can agree with you more. <laughs> I guess the complexities of it is that often we rely on fossil fuels from almost an hourly basis, if yep. not an hourly basis. We're addicted. Yeah. And like all addictions, you know, we need to recover. Mm. So to, to end, we are at an incredible time for humanity. I know that you're very excited about something. You can't necessarily say what it is. Um, but are you hopeful for the future? Something's coming, an alternative energy source, um, renewable energy source. Um, it will, yeah, it will change change the world. I hope it will rapidly um, mean we can decarbonize. We will no longer rely on fossil fuels um, and it will be uh, free. And I think, you know, that again, going back to the fossil fuel industry that's why they want to continue because they can make make money out of it whereas actually you know renewable energy 
even if it's solar and wind, beyond the initial layout for uh, infrastructure. Why are we paying? Why are we paying for it other than just managing the infrastructure? You know, we shouldn't be paying for that. It should be free, but it needs to be equitable as well. So, an equitable energy source that means that though you know we talk about a just transition, but we need to make sure that those countries and those communities that have never had access to the to the benefits of electricity will have the access, the first people to have access to, to, to the benefits of that, because that is that's wrong. They've paid the price. They have paid the price with pollution and ill health and death. Um, and they, they need to stop paying that price. You know, mm. we need to level up definitely. Exciting to have. Very yeah. exciting. It's incredibly exciting. And you know what? Probably six months ago I had almost zero hope that we were gonna make it out of this mess. But I do have some hope finally that uh, something is coming that means that we can uh, radically change. Okay, so to end, three quick fire questions. Okay. <laughs> um, one podcast recommendation. Oh, yeah, actually, I did a podcast for, they're called The Media Storm. Mm. So there's t- two women um, who are brilliant. They, it's like an extended woman's hour <laughs> topic. It's absolutely brilliant. They really go into depth about uh, things, society, things in society. So I really, yeah, The Media Storm, it's called. Yeah. And book recommendation. What are you, what are you reading? At the uh, what have you been really inspired by? I've been really inspired by The Book of Trespass. Okay. I don't know if you've read that. It is about trespassing uh, in Britain. It's uh, written by a guy who does trespass a lot across private lands, uh, big, um, you know, big estates. He writes while he's walking or canoeing or kayaking. And it's a brilliant, brilliant history of private land in the UK. And I highly recommend it. It's a joyful read and it will it will tell you how we have got to where we are in colonial Britain. So I, I'm going to throw something back to you, which isn't a book, but it's a YouTuber. And I've only just watched this. I'm not really big into YouTubers, but people do crazy things to get views now. <laughs> There's a YouTuber. Um, I think it's GeoWizard or something. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes afterwards. Um, who walks across Wales in a straight line but he cannot deviate off that straight line. <laughs> and it's amazing because he's going up across lots of different private lands and not getting caught. So I, I love the sound of that. <laughs> I'm going to look at that. That sounds fantastic. Straight lines only. Straight wow. line. That's it. That's tough in Wales. I know, right? He's having to go through <laughs> rivers. It's nuts. Uh, finally, because I know you're a big music lover, um, you know, what, what one artist would you put on if you're wanting to get that big idea or, or get some level of escapism? Nina Simone. Every time. Yeah. Why? And what song? She's an absolute queen. She she should have been our queen. Um, <laughs> she fought so hard. She stood up. She stood up for herself. She stood up for, for the black community and mm. all people of colour, actually. She was a musical genius. She was way ahead of her time. Mm. Um, really, any, anything. Anything by her, I don't care. Surprised it's not hip hop. We're talking about hip hop. I love hip hop. I do absolutely love hip hop. I think, yeah, Nina really... She is my late night working partner. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. It was such a great conversation and I can't wait to see what you do in the future. Thanks, Joss. Ah, oh, bloody hell. What a legend of a person. I just want to become best friends with Caroline. She's just such a rock star of a lady with a wealth of knowledge in, in corporate activism. And 
from understanding what questions contractors and employees should be asking to untangling the confusing messages and narratives that large corporates are holding on almost as delay tactics. You know, the conversation for me gave me a wider sense that the urgency to dial up and turn up the pressure on corporate motives to turn you know, thoughts into genuine action is what's needed right now. And from where I'm stood, I totally get that running businesses, especially in an economic downturn, is hard enough, let alone putting in all of these social and environmental elements and additions into the mix. But the later that these processes are taken seriously, the harder it will become to actually make this action. And whether or not people like it or not, I believe that using communications to back up genuine actions leads to competitive advantage. And it then leads to organizations actually having to take action. So we're definitely wanting people to communicate, but we definitely don't want greenwash. And the larger the organization is, the more murky these conversations, these messages seem to be. So I'm really interested to see how big corporates are going to address sustainability initiatives and, and ultimately um, break through the noise that is just corporate jargon. So yeah, Caroline, amazing, brilliant wise words. I'm feeling mega pumped to have spoken to you and, and generally get wider insight into what is the belly of the beast that is Shell. And thank you for listening. As always, really appreciate you subscribing and we've got some really exciting episodes in the future. So over and out, this is Josh speaking, Shifting Narrative.